You are listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Morning, Chester. Matt, I've got to talk to you. Sure. Uh, Chester? Uh, you folks will have to excuse me. I can't be puttering around the office all day. I'll be in the back if you want me. Yeah? Matt, he's here in Dodge City. I just saw him. He came in on the morning train. You mean Ed Beaudry? Yes. It's been four years, Matt. I'd begun to hope he'd forget. Hope he wouldn't find us. From what you've told me, Beaudry doesn't sound like a man who ever forgets. He's come here looking for Bert. To kill him, he swore he would. Matt, what are we going to do? I don't know. What's Bert think about it? He doesn't know yet. He's busy at the blacksmith shop. Matt, you've got to help us. You're the only real friend we have out here. It might make it easier if I weren't, Jeannie. I'm supposed to maintain law and order and dodge. That's my job. Doesn't leave much leeway to mix in on personal quarrels. Well, there's no quarrel. It's just that Ed Beaudry's a hot-tempered fool. Bert never did anything to him. He married you, didn't he? A woman has a right to change her mind, Matt. Maybe Beaudry doesn't think so. Matt, you... You promised me once in Louisville... Yeah. Yeah, I know. All right, Jeannie, go on home and... Uh... Don't say anything to Bert. I'll talk to Beaudry. Thank you. I'll never forget it. I... Goodbye, man. Chester. Yes, sir, I'll, I'll be right there, Mr. Dillon. Did Ms. Wells leave? Yeah. Fine couple of Wellses. Did you know them before they came out west? Uh, not Bert. I knew Mrs. Wells. I guess we better drop over to the Texas Trail, Chester. There's a fellow in town planning to do some killing. Matt! Reynolds! 
long time. Are you kidding? Hello, Chester. Miss Kitty? Come sit down, Matt. Tell me about things. I can't right now, Kitty. We're looking for a fellow. Thought he might have come in here. Sooner or later, they all do. Stranger, Matt? Uh, yeah. He came in on the morning train. His name's Ed Baudry. Oh, him? There. The bar, Matt. Third from the end, next to Tulsa Jim Nixon. He's buying Irish whiskey for everybody. Thank you, Kitty. Come on, Chester. Yes, sir. Watch yourself, Matt. Yeah, sure, Kitty. I'll see you later. All right, bartender. Set up another round of Jameson's for the house. Your name, Beaudry? Well, that's right, mister. Matt Dillon. I'm a U.S. Marshal here. I'd like to talk to you. Fine. Go ahead and talk. Uh, Tulsa, suppose you'll move on down the bar for a couple of minutes, huh? Oh, well, now, uh, dear Marshal, this man's a friend of mine. You're not very particular about your friends. Now, go on, Tulsa. Drift. Mr. Beaudry, you, uh, you came here to kill Bert Wells, didn't you? Did I? Well, here's some advice. Don't do it. Take the next train and get out of town. Is that official? Just what's the charge, Marshal? None. Yet. Murder, if you go through it. Well, not the way I understand it. Murder's one thing. Calling a man in a fair fight, that's another thing. Baudry, I'm the law here in Dodge, and I don't see it as a fair fight. Bert's a blacksmith, and he's not used to handling a gun. You are. And so I'm told. Who told you, Marshal? I don't know anybody here. And... Wait a minute. Dylan? Yeah. I heard Jeannie mention you. You knew her back in Louisville before she ran off. We'll leave her out of this, Pudry. So that's it. This isn't official. You're just doing a personal favor for an old friend. Probably a very close friend. Jeannie always did have a weak... I warned you once. All right, hold it. Now get up, Pudry. That was a mistake, Dylan. Now I'll have to kill you, too. I'm not a blacksmith, Baudry. I'll look you up just soon as I've finished with Bert Wells. If you kill Bert, you won't have to look me up. No, she just happened to see him get off the train this morning. She came and told me. She shouldn't have done it, Matt. It's not your problem. Maybe it is, Bert. I'm the law in Dodge, and the law doesn't like the idea of personal grudges ended up in a killing. What do you aim to do? Prevent it if I can. Well, I wish you luck. You haven't worn that gun for two years, Bert. Why start now? I've got no choice, Matt. You know that. You mean you got no chance. If you let Baudry call a showdown, he'll kill you. Maybe. Look, Bert, why don't you take to the prairie, hold up for a week or so while I figure some way of running Baudry out of town, huh? Would you do it, Matt? 
hide out and let somebody else do your fighting for you? Well, what I'd That's do is... That's beside the point, Bert. Jeannie. There's a law against killing. And it's Matt's job to enforce it. If you went away, there wouldn't be any fight. Wouldn't be much honor either, Jeannie. Man can't run and still call himself a man. He can run from a mad dog. And that's what Ed Beaudry is. He never had any claim on me. It appears he thought he did. Matt, you know where Beaudry stand? I talked to him in the Texas Trail. He probably took one of the rooms upstairs. Like to walk over there with me? Well, if that's the way you want it. No, Bert, you... you... I'll get my hat. Be right with you. Matt, you've got to stop it. Yeah? How? I don't know. But there must be something you can do. Yeah, there is. Boy, it's shaping up. I can probably arrest the survivor. Time to turn back, Bert. Afraid not, Matt. I should have had it out with Baudry back there in Kentucky five years ago. Jeannie wanted to run away and avoid trouble, and she was so beautiful it was hard to argue with her. Yeah, I know. Be hard on her if anything happened to you. Life's always hard on a woman, I guess. Worse out here on the prairie. Look out for her, Matt, in case I... Well, I mean, if anything... Mr. Dillon? Huh? Oh, what is it, Chester? Baudry left the saloon a little while ago. Went over to the livery stable to hire a horse. Huh? I think he's riding out to your place, Mr. Wells. He's been doing a lot of talking. Jeannie will be there alone, Matt. I better get back home. It won't be necessary. Here comes Baudry now. I won't draw unless he does, Matt. Heads up, Chester. Yes, sir. Just riding out to call on you, Wells. I decided you'd had plenty of time to look me up. No reason to, Baudry. Most men would figure they had reason. Somebody been in a local saloon, telling their wife's history. What? Baudry, you... All right, hold it. Don't draw, Bert. Chester, cover Baudry. Just keep your hands still, Mr. Baudry. You're fast with that gun, Dylan. Fast enough, Mr. Baudry. You make Baudry. a good bodyguard. Too bad you can't ride her 24 hours a day. I told you what to expect if you keep pushing this thing, Mr. Baudry. Now use some sense and get out of town while you're still alive. I've been in lots of towns, Dylan. I left them all alive. Wells, I've been planning to kill you for five years. Plans don't always work out. Listen, Will. You got till sundown. After that, I'm going to shoot you on sight. All right, Mr. Baudry. If you've finished speaking your piece, move along. Why, surely, Mr. Dillon. See you later. Well, still a couple of hours before sundown. I think I'd like to spend them with Jeannie. 
I'll see you, Matt. Yeah, sure. Goodbye, Bert. I declare I, I just can't see any way of stopping it, Mr. Dillon. I can't either. I'd sure hate to be in Bert Wells' shoes. I'd hate worse to be in Baudry's. He'll never submit to arrest. Chester, I'm going to have to kill him. Why don't you relax, Matt? You're nervous as a cat. Yeah, and I'll stay nervous, Kitty, until I find out what's happened to those two. Baudry slipped out the back way just at dusk. Piano player saw him. Yeah. Now, Bert pulled the same trick. I had a couple of boys watching the blacksmith shop, but he managed to give them a slip. There's nothing you can do now, Matt. Well. Another killing. And you in the middle again. Why, Matt? Why do you do it? It's a job, Kitty. Somebody's got to do it. But why you? There are other things in life if you look around for them. Well, maybe I will someday. Will you look my way, Matt? Well, Matt, I... I brought my kit. All prepared. Ah, where are the victims? No victims yet, Doc. You're jumping the gun. Well, I understand it's going to be a real showdown. The boys at the bar are offering two to one on Baudry. That's about the odds, I figure, if the shooting really starts. Oh, it'll start all right. Oh, and there's not a thing in the world can stop it. Dylan? Chester, what are you doing in here? I told you to watch that street. Yes, sir, I know you did. The fight's as likely to start out there as any place else. No, sir, Mr. Dillon. I guess there's not going to be any fight. What? They just found Baudry lying in an alley down the block. Matt. Somebody sneaked up behind him with a hammer. He's sure dead. return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, what is the connection between the statue in the square and a pair of thugs who are definitely not on the square with the law? Tonight on Gangbusters, hear the complete details of this exciting case taken from actual police files. Remember, it's Gangbusters later tonight on most of these same CBS radio stations. Don't miss it. Now, the second act of Gunsmoke. Mr. Dillon? No. Another shop either. He might have skipped out. Well, what about his wife, though? I don't know, Chester. I can't figure any of this. It's not like Bert to pull a sneaking trick like that. Hold it. Don't move. He's there by the tree, Chester. Yes, sir. Bert. Who is it? Who's that? Matt. Chester's with me. You better put away the gun. 
Matt. I thought it was somebody else. Who, Bert? You know who, Baudry, of course. Guess I better take your gun. Official, Matt? Official. Well, I got no quarrel with the law. Here. Thank you. Now, why did you do it? What do you mean? If it had been a gunfight, the law couldn't have touched you. The circumstances are all in your favor. But this way, they'll call it murder. And they'll be right, because that's what it was. Matt, what are you talking about? It's no use. You left the hammer lying right beside his body. It's got your shop brand carved in the handle of it. Whose body are you talking about? You mean Baudry? Yeah, sure, Baudry. Matt, you're making a mistake. I went looking for Baudry, yes, but I didn't find him. Then I come back here. I was afraid to leave Jeannie there in the house alone. I, I didn't do it, Matt. You're wrong. It's not up to me, Bert. It's the court's job. All I can do is take in. The evidence is too strong and I got no choice. No choice? I didn't have a choice either. We must have had a choice somewhere back down the line. When? Where was it we could have stopped and turned back? I'm a marshal, not a philosopher. Now, let's go. What about Jeannie? i got to tell her. Chester will take care of it. It'd be better if you'd do it, Matt. You're a friend. That'd make it easier. I'd rather not if you don't mind. Now, come on, let's go. Step inside. Four years we've been friends, Matt. I never thought it would come to this. Neither did I. You said you didn't find any money on him. It could have been robbery. I made to look like robbery. But either way, there's nothing I can do. Now, you better step inside. I'll, uh... I'll bring you some blankets and tobacco. If you want anything else, let me know. Wish I knew how Jeannie was taking it. She'll be all right. She's a fine girl. Matt. Matt, look out for her, will you? Bert, a man's job is one thing, friendship's another. This prairie country is rough and tough and wild at the best. And without the law, nobody could survive in it. And that means putting friendship aside sometimes. But a man still doesn't forget. Yeah, I'll look out for her. Thanks, Matt. I'll see you later. Get your prisoner tucked in safely, Matt. What about Baudry? He's dead. Absolutely dead. Like I never saw anybody any deader. Blacksmith hammer makes a mighty fine weapon. Yeah. At least for sneaking up behind. I can't figure Bert doing that. It's not like him. Sometimes a man changes under pressure, Doc. Yeah, I can't figure it either. What would you say his chances are? Bad. Straws all point one way. 
Huh. Yes. Maybe somebody's been messing with the straw stack. Who? That's a good question, man. Well, the court will ask it. Yeah, if he ever gets there. What do you mean? I just come from Texas Trail a while ago, and some of the boys are kind of riled up. They're talking real loose. No law against talking. Yeah, doubt if they aim to leave it at talking, Matt. They figure the evidence is a little on the weak side. A court might turn Bert loose. So they're saying it's up to them. Yeah, they're just mad because they lost their source of free drink. Well, maybe so, but you better keep your eyes open, Matt. Yeah, I know that pack, Doc. They hunt in the dark and pull down stragglers, and mostly they just talk. So don't worry. Bert's in jail, and that's where he's going to stay. I want to see Bert. No visitors after dark. It's a jail rule. Rules don't have to be enforced. Mine do. Bert's a prisoner, same as any other prisoner. He's charged with murder. He didn't do it, Matt. It's not for me to say. But you know he didn't. You know Bert. You know he wouldn't do a thing like that. Sneak up behind a man's back in the dark. I'm not the court, Jeannie. I know. And they'll believe he did it. Yeah, the night train's coming in. I hope it's not bringing in trouble. The morning train did. Matt, I want to see Bert. I told you that you... Why, you little fool. <laughs> Give me the gun, Janie. No, I warn you, Matt, stay Give back. Give me the gun. No, Matt. So help me, I I'll... said hand it over. <laughs> What did you hope to gain by I that? I don't know. Get Bert out. Maybe I don't know. None of this is his fault. Something's got to be done. Matt, you've got to help me. Easy. <laughs> Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? I, I just come from the Texas Trail. I think there's going to be some trouble. Trouble? The bunch that hangs out around there are doing a lot of drinking and talking up the idea of coming over here to the jail. Oh, no. Well, maybe we ought to go over there and do some talking ourselves. Jenny, I think the best thing for you to do is to go back home and stay there till morning. But... Now, don't worry about this. Nothing's going to happen. Oh, but, Matt, you can't handle that crowd alone. I've been handling things alone for a long time. All right, Chester. Those are Jim Nixon's, the one who's been agging them on, Mr. Dillon. Over there at the end of the bar. Yeah, he struck up an acquaintance with Beaudry when he first got off the train. Guess he figures he's an old partner by now. Well, come on. Yes, sir. Matt, Matt, wait. 
Later, Kitty, I got some business with the boys at the bar. That's what I mean. Tulsa Jim's been buying them drinks the last two hours. They're in a real nasty mood. So? So be careful, Matt. That's all. Just be careful. Kitty, I'm the carefulest man you know. Supposedly. But what kind of a law is it that lets a man sneak up behind somebody in the dark and murder him in cold blood? I don't know, Tulsa. Suppose you tell me. Dylan. Now, don't let me interrupt you. You were doing fine. Well, this is quite an audience you got. All the panhandlers, bums, and barflies and dodge. It's quite a collection. Well, calling names won't change the facts, Dylan. What facts? A friend of yours, Bert Wells, had sneaking, cowardly murder. That's for the court to decide, Tulsa. The court. They'll turn him loose. They work hand in glove with you. Dylan, we're not going to stand for it. All right, shut up. So you're not going to stand for it, huh? Well, just what are you planning to do? You'll find out in due time, Dylan. Go tend to set him up again all around. Uh, you've turned into quite a free spender, Tulsa. I never knew you to... Ah, uh, double eagle gold piece. You mind if I take a look at it? It's good. Don't worry about that. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Where'd you get it? That's my business, Dylan. So you're the one who killed Baudry. That's a lie. I thought robbing him was just a cover-up, but it wasn't. There aren't many double eagles around Dodge. Baudry had a lot of them. Now you... Why would you get a pocket full of gold pieces, Tulsa? Wells killed Baudry. The blacksmith hammer was lying right beside him. Yes, where you left it. Uh, what does she mean? Tulsa Jim came into my husband's shop late this afternoon. His horse had thrown a shoe. He had plenty of chance to steal that hammer. She's lying. Why did you get the gold, Tulsa? I, well, I, I, won it, well, I won it in the poker game. Last week when, well, when the trail herd would... Tulsa, you're under arrest for murder. No, you'll never take me! All right, Doc. You better get up an inquest. Confounded match. You never give me any chance to practice on live people. Yeah. You wouldn't know what to do with them, Doc. Well, I, I do get fewer complaints this way. Matt. Matt, does this mean that Bert's free? You shouldn't have come here, Jeannie. Yeah, he's free. Chester will go with you over to the jail and let him out. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for everything. You told me one time in Louisville that... Louisville? That was a long time ago and a long way off. So, uh... Goodbye, Jeannie. Goodbye, Matt. What's it all about, Matt? What? <laughs> What's anything all about, kidding? Professor, what do you say we'll just have a little tune, huh? Why, sure thing, Mr. Dillon. What'd you like to hear? Oh, uh, how about that one of Foster's, uh, Jeannie. Jeannie with the light brown hair. You bet. You knew her before, didn't you, Matt? Yeah, I met her in Louisville one summer. Saw her quite a lot for a couple of months. 
And then I drifted out west. A man misses out on things by drifting. I told her then if she ever needed help to, to call on me. Well, she called, and you helped her. Yeah, I guess. Well, anyway, uh, that's that. Matt. Yeah. Yeah, Kitty. When are you going to help yourself? Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in our cast were Tom Tully, Lynn Allen, Larry Dobkin, Georgia Ellis, and Barney Phillips. Parley Bear is Chester, and Howard McNear is Doc. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. What are the tunes most people like best? For the answer to that question, listen to Robert Q. Lewis's Waxworks later tonight over most of these same CBS radio stations. Stay tuned now for Broadway is My Beat, which follows immediately over most of these same radio stations. Roy Rowan speaking. On a Sunday afternoon, the music's delightful on the CBS Radio Network. the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Spam. Crazy people. Spam, rebuff, boom, spam. George Burns and Gracie Allen. Are you sure when it's orchestra? 
singing glee, we're the Smoothies Three. Last but not least, and with Bud Heaston. night at your house again. Fun and laughs with George and Gracie and a hint on how you can laugh at old man warm weather. Serve Spam and vegetable salad. There's a cool, inviting meal you can summon to your table at a moment's notice. A meal that gives the family plenty to eat. Easy? Sure. Just open a can of Spam, spelled S-P-A-M, slice and put on a plate with the salad. Those juicy, tender slices of Spam really make the meal. Spam is grand-tasting meat with a flavor that's downright good. So ask your food dealer for Spam. Serve it tomorrow. Try those easy recipes on the label. Then you can vacation from the kitchen and have a good laugh on old man warm weather. And now for the stars of our show, those two Spam ambassadors of fun, George and Gracie. Thank you very much. Hello, Gracie. Hello, Bud. Uh, what do you think of the hot weather we've been having? Oh, boy, I wish I knew how to keep cool. Oh, I know what we could do, Bud. We can go down to the beach and sit in the sand, and I'll hold your hand, and you can hug me, and I can kiss you. Oh, and then Gracie, you can kiss... uh, will that cool us off? No, but we we may as well enjoy the heat, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think he knows what you mean, and Gracie, quiet about the heat. The tourists might be listening. Tourists? What's a tourist? What's a tourist? Yes. Look, Gracie, let's say you leave the studio, you cross Hollywood and Vine, you get on a bus... Oh, it's impossible. What's impossible? To cross Hollywood and Vine. All right, forget Hollywood and Vine. You get on the train in Los Angeles and you travel and travel and travel and travel. What are you? Still in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'll try to explain what a tourist is again. I'm in the Brown Derby eating... What are you eating? A chicken sandwich. White meat or dark meat? What's the difference? $3.20. Well, then I come out of the Brown Derby. There are people waiting out there with paper and pencils. Are they waiting for you? Yes. What are they? Creditors. It's still very warm, and as a matter of fact, it's getting hotter, Bud. Well, George, if you're that warm, why don't you do what my brother does? What does he do? Well, he knows how to keep cool. He does? Yeah, every morning. Every morning he spends two hours under a cold shower. He, uh, well, how does he stand that? He doesn't turn the water on. Which, uh, which, which brother is that? Well, that's the one who's smarter than I am. Oh, the, the half-wit, the tall one. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. The good-looking kid. Yeah. The golfer. Yeah. Yes. The one who got his head caught in the Frigidaire. His head got caught in the Frigidaire? Well, yeah, you see, he didn't believe the light went out when you closed the door. Well, of course, that's a nice way to keep cool. I don't think so. That's a crazy way. I bet it is. The best thing to do is what my daddy thought of yesterday. What's that? Well, he attached an electric fan to his nose. 
attached an electric fan to his nose? Yes. Where's your daddy now? Flying over Kansas City. <laughs> I, uh... I really think I was better off with the tourists. What's the tourists? Quiet, quiet. Come in. Four years in Harvard, and all I do is open and close doors. Sound man, stop grumbling and open the door. I'll do it, but my heart isn't in it. Mr. Burns? Yes. <laughs> Mr. Burns, you've got a wonderful program, and I think you're great. And I've come all the way from New York to Los Angeles to get your autograph. Well, you're just in time, mister. I've been trying to explain to Gracie what a tourist is. Now, if you came all the way from New York to Los Angeles and you want my autograph, what are you? Your brother Willie, remember? <laughs> well, just for that, go back to the hotel and take my suit off. Quickly. Mm. Sound man, these door slams that you give out each week are going to knock down the building. Mr. Burns, Bing Crosby says, boo 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 For that, he gets $10,000. Ted Lewis is everybody happy, $12,000. Jack Benny, terrific vocabulary. Instead of saying hello again, jello again, $20,000. I have translated into English the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics discovered on the tomb of King Herod III, covering the period from the Second Dynasty through the Peloponnesian Wars. And this is what I do for a living. Wow. Right after the broadcast, I'll give you a gold star and a Tootsie Roll. <laughs> and now the smoothies, Babs, Charlie, and Little are going to sing a very... Uh, Senor Burns, con permiso, quiero decir una cosa, por favor. Hey, guitar, hey, guitar player. Senor Lee, what is it now? There's one member in the orchestra who sings much better than the smoothies. He is the greatest singer in the country, but he is too modest to tell you. Who was that? Me. <laughs> You're the greatest singer in the country? You really think so? <laughs> so, so the smoothies will sing Hey, but... George, I finally got it Now, how could I have been so stupid? I know what a tourist is Well, good, good What is a tourist? Your brother Willie Gracie, a tourist is a person who travels from place to place and never stops Oh, Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> You guessed it and now the smoothies will sing. Okay, okay, Senor Lee, as long as you're such a good singer, come up here. I'd like to hear you sing. Introduction, Artie. Not in the mood. Yeah. <laughs> well. Well, never mind. Artie, what are you going to play tonight? A little French number entitled Le Pleuvoir d'Avril. What does that mean in English? April showers. <laughs> Why did you say it in French? Well, Senor Lee doesn't like the number and he doesn't understand French. Why does a Senor Lee like April showers? Why, it's a beautiful number. Moon April showers. <laughs> will come your way home. What's the matter? <laughs> Well, Artie, I suppose if Senor Lee doesn't like it, you'll have to play something else. Yep. Tonight, I'm going to play Temptation. Fine. Why he puts up with that Senor Lee is more than I can understand. Say, George, you just don't understand the Latin people, that's all. But you do, huh? Well, I was in South America. I know exactly how they live. All night long, they sit under the moon and make love. And They, they sit under the moon all night and make love? Yeah. What do they do in the daytime? Well, they sit under the sun and cool off. <laughs> 
Party temptation, please. by the number one band of the nation. It's pretty cute. <laughs> and uh, really, Artie, I've never heard you play that number. I've never heard you uh, play that number so well before. That was well, right. that's mighty yeah. nice of you to say that, George. I, I, I really mean it, Artie. Do you care to smoke a cigar with me? Oh, I'd love to. All right, I'll smoke it down here, and then you can have it. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, kid. So, George, while Artie Shaw was doing his number, our costumes arrived for the kitty party. Oh, Gracie, are you and George going to a kitty party tonight? Mm-hmm. Look, Gracie, I'll go to the Coconut Grove because I love it. And I love Betty Duchin's music. But I'm not getting into that Lord Fauntleroy suit. Some fun I had at the last kitty party. I spent ten minutes bobbing for apples. And twenty minutes bobbing for your teeth. <laughs> That was a cute sight. All those grown-up movie stars with lollipops in their mouths. Well, all of them didn't have lollipops. No? Joey Brown had a chocolate-covered shovel. <laughs> Kitty parties. It's not bad enough that you have to go dressed up like five-year-old rollicking Rollo. You've got to entertain with the tiny tot stuff. 
After all, I'm not exactly five years old. You're not exactly ten. Certainly. Not exactly twenty. That's right. Not exactly forty. Quiet, quiet. <laughs> I can go on like this for years. But don't, don't, just don't. Uh... <laughs> but how old do I look to you? Well, roughly, George, your face looks about thirty. There you are, Gracie. <laughs> but smooth it out, and it looks at least sixty. <laughs> George. Not going to that kiddie party. They want you to entertain. What are you going to do, Gracie? Oh, I know a very cute story. It goes like this. Sorry. Once there was a nice little boy, and he saw a little angleworm who had nobody to play with. And the nice little boy felt so sorry for the little angleworm that he took out his penknife, and he cut the little angleworm in half, and then he said, Now, little angleworm, will have somebody to play with. <laughs> Very cute, but you see, I don't know any stories. I... George, George, here's a little poem you can tell. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. See Dr. Cowan, credit dentist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, still not performing. Well, George, look, here's one. Uh, little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating a can of Spam. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out some meat, which is not only a pure pork product, but is a perfect blend of the choicest cuts. Pork shoulder, the juiciest, sweetest meat, combined with ham meat, well known for tenderness and flavor, and said, what a good boy am I. Oh. Well, still not performing. Well, George, why don't you do a little poem like this? I don't want to hear it. Good. I always use a dial phone. With me, it never fails. I never get my number, but it manicures my nails. Gracie, I'm still not performing. Mr. Burns, oh. if you'll allow a sound man. Allow it. Here is a simple little poem which I recited when I was six years old. Poem. Species aromatic rosa bacilli are red. Species genus viola septuri are blue. C2H4016 is a split carbohydrate. And so are you. Oh, that's beautiful. Why did you do that? Uh, you think I ought to do oh, that I one? Oh, I love that Still one. not performing. Uh, Senor Burns, I have a children's poem. Well, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. <laughs> I'm a little wildflower, growing wilder every hour. Nobody tries to cultivate me. Caramba, do I smell. <laughs> I've got a TL for you. Forget the poems, and I'm not going. Oh, but I've got a beautiful costume for you. A little short pants and a busted brown collar and a big bow and a little sailor hat. Oh, you look awfully cute. Dapper, huh? No, no, you're too old to wear dapper. Oh, well, I <laughs> And now the smoothies will sing. See, Meet the sun halfway. So I think maybe I sing now. Well, I think maybe I let you, and I hope you're in the mood. Introduction, Artie. Not in the mood. <laughs> Senor Lee, I don't think you ever sang in your life. <laughs> que barbaridad. I sang Carmen in South America. Well, I was there. Quiet. I can picture it now. There I am in the middle of the arena. The greatest singer in the world. Oh, dressed like a toreador. Thousands of people applauding. The lights dim down. I open my mouth. And the bull rushes out. Oh, <laughs> Smoothies, the song. Stop hiding behind a pillow. 
Whenever the dogs scream, get up, come on, get out, and meet the sun halfway. There may be a fortune waiting, or maybe an exit plane. Get up, come on, get out, and meet the sun halfway. Get into the tub. As you begin to rub and scrub, give out with your version of the road to Mandalay. Don't ever expect the right side served up to you on a train. Get up, come on, get out, you're late, and meet the sun halfway. You had a good night, you didn't count sheep. Enough for that going back to sleep. Hey, sleepyhead, don't you know what you're missing? Sleepyhead, life can really be gay. So gay, so stop hiding behind a pillow. Whenever dawn looks gray, get up, get out, get on your way, and meet the sun halfway. There may be a fortune waiting, or maybe an exit play. Get up, get out, and meet the sun halfway. Get into the tub, the tub, and start to rub and scrub. Why don't you give out with your version of the road to Mandalay? Don't ever expect the right side served up to you on a train. Why don't you get up, get out, and meet the sun halfway? Come on, get up, it's sunny outside. Get out of there, you're on the right side. You meet the sun halfway. Maurice, you did a grand job. Well, George, can I uh, take the microphone for a second here? Oh, I'm, sure. uh, I'm, excuse me, please. I got a little problem here. See, platter, scatter, fatter. Gosh, gee, platter, chatter. My goodness, uh, so what's the matter? Well, I got another swell poem here, Gracie, except that I can't make the last line rhyme. Oh, well, I'm good at that. Give me the test and I'll do my best. Poem, you see? That's <laughs> very <right>, cute. <laughs> hey, go ahead. Um, uh, in the good old summertime, have something just right when you dine. You'll make a hit with spam on a platter. Well, that's where I'm stuck, Gracie. I, I need something to rhyme with platter. Oh, that's easy, but listen. You'll make a hit with spam on a platter, for real, you know, there's nothing better. <laughs> nothing better. Not bad, Gracie, and thanks. That's what I needed to get me started on a swell suggestion for a grand warm weather meal. A spam summer platter. Open a can or two of Spam, S-P-A-M, slice and arrange around a large platter. Next, a circle of luscious sliced tomatoes, then a ring of your favorite cheese sliced. Decorate the platter with crisp celery, radishes, olives, and raw carrots. With potato salad, iced tea or coffee, and a simple dessert, you bring to your table a perfect summer meal. Just wait until Dad and the youngsters taste those juicy slices of Spam. Delicious meat that, that pleases every appetite because Spam is meat with a hearty He-Man flavor. You'll like it, too, because Spam is so easy to use. Ready to eat just as it comes from the can, Spam is always handy because it keeps without refrigeration. Serve a Spam summer platter soon. Ask your food dealer for Spam when you shop tomorrow and try the easy recipes on the label. Then you'll discover that cold or hot, Spam hits the spot. Slice it, dice it, fry it, bake it, cold or hot, Spam hits the spot.
smoothies? That was really swell. It was, See, George, uh, I saw all the costumes for the kitty party tonight, and Georgie Jessel's wife's costume is the prettiest. It is, huh? Yes. Oh, it's very cute. She's going to wear little bobby socks and a little baby bonnet and a little white play dress and a blue sash on it. Probably be very happy in a thing like that. Well, she should be. It was her wedding gown. <laughs> well... It's, uh, it's too bad, Gracie. I, I won't be able to see the dress. Why? We won't get there until after nine, and Mrs. Jessel will be home before that. Oh, doctor's orders? No, the curfew law. <laughs> curfew law? Yes. <laughs> What's that? Cur- uh, it's a law that's just been passed in California. It's for the protection of juveniles. Who are they? Before you were 18, what were you? 17. According to the new curfew law, if you're under 18 and you're out after 9 o'clock, an officer comes up and serves you with a writ. Just me? No. If your brother is out, the officer comes up and serves him with a writ. And if his brother is out, he serves him with a writ. Now, do you know what it is? Yeah, the writ's brothers. (laughs) The only one who can explain a law like this to you, Gracie, is a jurist. But you don't even know what a jurist is. I do, too. What's a jurist? You cross Hollywood and Vine, you get in a bus, and you think it's your brother Will, you turn out to be Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Look, uh, curfew is a thing that's impossible to explain to an idiot. Mr. Burns, I think I can explain it to you. <laughs> well, thanks, sound man. Thanks, oodles. I'll admit I haven't had a college education, so no matter what you're explaining, you're wasting your time because I can't understand it. So go back to your door. Peasant. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. How did I get mixed up in a thing like this? No, well, none of this would have happened if you put on your kitty costume in the first place. All right. I'll go off stage and put it on right now. And I'll leave it to the rest of the cast and see if it doesn't look silly. All right. Well, come right back. Yes, I'll be right back. <laughs> oh, but I wish you were going to the party. Yeah, so do I. It's going to be a swell party. Mickey Rooney is going to bring Ann Sheridan and Charles Boyer. <laughs> That's a funny thing. If Mickey Rooney is bringing Ann Sheridan with that new curfew law, Mickey will have to be home by 9 o'clock. Yeah, or else he'd be arrested for arson. Uh, arson? <laughs> Gracie, arson means burned up. Well, if you had to leave Ann Sheridan at 9 o'clock, you'd be burned up, too. (laughs) Well, it sure is tough on these kids with these curfew officers, but, boy, I'd give anything to go to the party. Well, I've just got two tickets for the kiddie party. One is George's and one is mine. Oh, wait a minute. George is getting dressed up as a baby. We can phone the curfew officer. He'll take George home and put him to bed, and you and I can go to the party. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, why didn't I think of that? Oh, 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 oh dear. Who, who knows the number of the curfew officer? Well, I think it's a rotten trick you're playing on as nice a fellow as George. The number is Gladstone 1131. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll go and call her. But now, don't forget, everybody, when George comes in, tell him how nice and young he looks. Okay. okay. Uh-oh, here he comes. Here I am Dad, 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 dad Oh, how are you, little boy? Where's your mama? See, George, that's how young you look I didn't know you Oh, stop Artie, how do you like me in my kitty costume? When I walked in, did you notice my rattle? Yeah, you ought to get your joints oiled just for that, I'll take my Shirley Temple doll and fracture your skull. That's a nice bow you've got on your hat, George. Thanks. <laughs> it's a nice bow. <laughs> it's a nice bow you have on your legs. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah? Oh, but you shouldn't say things like that about George. Thanks, Christian. 
Legs like his are few and far between. Uh, pardon me, but I got a call from a Mr. Heaston. Oh, so I guess you're the little girl, or boy. What a cute little boy and what a cute outfit. How old are you? Uggle, glubble, glubble. My, you look older than that. All right, so I'm uggle, glubble, glubble and a half. A little five-year-old boy smoking cigars? Yes, and I dink, too. What? I dink. Oh, George, you can speak plainer than that. Well, come along with me, my little man. I can't. I got to go to a party at the Coconut Dome. I'm the curfew officer. We're going to have a lot... Wait a minute, brother. I happen to be a very old man. Mister, did you ever see a five-year-old with a face like mine? Yeah, I came in second yesterday at Hollywood Park. know who framed this, but all I know is that I'm not going to any kiddie party. Here, Gracie, you can have the ticket. Oh, thanks. Oh, come on, curfew officer. We're going to a party. Well, Gracie, are you going out with that curfew officer? What about me? Well, you can go with him next week. I'll go to the party, Miss Allen, but I'll have to take you home by 9 o'clock. Oh, oh I'm over 18. But I'm not. <laughs> Artie, what does the senor want now? Now he's in the mood to sing. Well, all right. Come down here and sing. But is the audience in the mood? Audience, are you in the mood? <laughs> They're not in the mood. <laughs> well, all right, senor. Don't sing and don't bother me and don't come back next week. Senor Burns, that did it. Oh, you're going to quit. No, now I'm in the mood. Una vez más, te pido yo que me perdones, te pido que no me abandones, que hago sin ti. Una vez más, quiero besar tu linda boca. Ciego de amor y pasión loca que siento por ti. Yo tu belleza no la olvido, pues es difícil de olvidar. Tu nombre siempre lo bendigo, aunque tú me hiciste un gran mal. Te pido una vez más, quiero besar tu linda boca, ciego de amor y pasión loca, que siento por ti. Ole, 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 una vez más, ole, ole, ole. Gracie have asked me to suggest you try a Spam summer platter at your house real soon. 
you'll like the delicious, meaty flavor of Spam, the way it satisfies husky appetites. So just open a can of Spam, slice this grand-tasting meat, and let it headline a platter of tomatoes, cheese, crisp celery, and favorite summer fixings. That's the easy way to good, warm-weather meals. Ask for Spam, S-P-A-M, when you shop tomorrow. Try the simple recipes on the label. Thank you, Bud. Gracie, say goodnight. Oh, goodnight. Oh, say, George, Senor Lee's song made me feel so romantic, I feel like kissing somebody. Well, how about kissing me? Well, pucker up your lips. Well, they're pocket. Well... Not in the mood. Uh, good night. <laughs> Listen in again next Monday night, same time, same station, for George Burns and Gracie Allen with Artie Shaw and his orchestra and the smoothies brought to you by Hormel and Spam. Until then, this is Bud Heaston reminding you to remember that cold or hot, Spam hits the spot. Good night. <laughs> Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows today from your favorite online bookstore. Give the gentleman the best in the house. Yes, sir. I'll be back in a minute. On a mountain in Virginia stands a lonesome pine. Just below is the cabin home of a little girl of mine. Her name is June, and very, very soon she'll belong to me. For I know she's waiting there for me neath that lone pine tree. Virginia, on the trail of the lonesome pine, in the pale moonshine, a heart's entwined, where she carved her name, and I carved mine, oh June, oh June, just like the mountains are blue, like the pine, I am lonesome for you. On the trail of the lonesome pine. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, on the trail of the lonesome pine. In the pale moonshine, our hearts entwine, where she carved her name and I carved mine. Oh, June, like the mountains, I'm blue, like the pine. I am lonesome for you. Bubble toil and trouble, here come the coasters, they're gonna sing. Bee, bee, bye, bye, boo, boo, bum. Who's got the Coca-Cola? Give me some. Things go better with Coca-Cola. Things go better with Coca-Cola. Go and get some. Go and get some. Them bubbles are so cool and 
This is Elliot Reed, and welcome again to more New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce. Usually, when a motion picture is produced, the actors and actresses are hired, they play their roles, and when the film is finished, they go their separate ways. This is standard procedure in the film business. However, there were exceptions. The Sherlock Holmes series, made by Universal Studios, was one of them. Time and again, many of the same actors and actresses were brought back to play different roles. It was like having a family. And it was the same way in radio, but even more so, as there were many regular series that had continuing characters. Uh, what I'm saying is that a family of actors and actresses were established for the Sherlock Holmes radio series, some of them brought over from the Universal Holmes motion pictures. Take, for example, Frederick Warlock, a fine British actor and personal friend of Basil Rathbone. He appeared in the film series as Jeffrey Musgrave in Sherlock Holmes Faces Death and as Onslow in The Woman in Green, also as the Prime Minister in Pursuit to Algiers, as Professor Kilbane in Terror by Night, and as Colonel Cavanaugh in Dress to Kill so fine an actor that he was brought into the radio series to play Inspector Lestrade during the final radio season starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. As a matter of fact, Frederick Warlock can be heard in the first Holmes mystery on this cassette in two roles, that of Coggins, the suspicious deckhand, and as Mr. Small, the ship's captain. In radio, this was called doubling. More on that later. Rex Evans, who played the sinister Gregor in the Holmes film Pursuit to Algiers, was brought in to play Mycroft Holmes many times on the radio series. Another regular member of the radio family was Carl Harbord, who played Inspector Hopkins in the Holmes film Dress to Kill. He played a major character almost every week on the previous season of Sherlock Holmes cassettes we have released and appears again on this series. And let's not forget Mary Gordon, Mrs. Hudson in the film series, and she played the same role throughout the years of the radio show. By having a family of actors and actresses on a continuing radio series, a special rhythm and pacing was established. Working together so continuously brought a familiarity between these actors, which made it easy to rehearse and broadcast each show. This added polish and professionalism to the Sherlock Holmes series and made for a good time had by all. 
The only sad part is that these very talented supporting actors and actresses never got credit on the air. Unfortunately, that was a network policy until the late 1940s. And now, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in The Adventure of the Sally Martin. Kremel Hair Tonic and Kremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Now, once again, it's time to keep our weekly appointment with that incomparable host and storyteller, Dr. Watson. I'm sure he's expecting us. Of course I am, Mr. Bell. So come in, drop your usual chair, and make yourself comfortable. Ah, <sighs> uh, that's it. Thank you, Dr. Watson. What story are you planning to tell us tonight? Quite an exciting one, I think. Uh, the only relic I have of it is this rather mildewed piece of paper. I came across it just before you arrived as I was going over my notes on the case. But this doesn't look very exciting. It's a hotel bill, and all it says is board and lodging for one week, 28 shillings and sixpence. <laughs> then there's an extra item, one pint of ale not paid for, fivepence. And yet that extra pint of ale was ordered at the very moment... When Sherlock Holmes and I entered into one of the weirdest experiences we ever had. I call it The Adventure of the Sally Martin. Before you begin the story, Dr. Watson, do you mind if I... Uh... Have a word with our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> of course not, Mr. Bell. Men, if you want a successful, prosperous appearance, don't give your hair that cheap, greasy, plastered-down look. Many products advertise that they don't leave the hair looking or feeling greasy. But let's make this test. Run your hand over your hair. Does your hair feel greasy or sticky? Now look at your hand. Is there a greasy film on it? If there is, then you certainly are not using Kremel hair tonic. Because Kremel positively never leaves the hair looking or feeling greasy, sticky, or dirty. Kremel contains a very special hair grooming ingredient found in no other hair tonic. It makes dry, unruly hair stay in place longer. Gives it such a nice, healthy-looking luster, too. When you use Kremel, you can run your hand over your hair and no grease comes off. Notice, too, how delightfully clean your hair feels. And just see if the ladies don't like that natural, well-groomed look which Kremel always gives. Try it, men. K-R-E-M-L, Kremel Hair Tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, how about the adventure of the Sally Martin? Well, the story began many years ago in the tiny fishing village of Kingsgate on the Kentish coast. At my insistence, Sherlock Holmes had agreed to take a much-needed holiday. And we were staying for a few days at a small seaside inn known as the Silver Dolphin. The adventure began, I remember, on a foggy, bitterly cold evening. Holmes and I, after a hearty dinner, were seated in the public bar of the inn talking to a garrulous old sailor. Little did we think that even in that peaceful village, dark tragedy was stalking us. Tragedy that very soon was to be brought to our attention. Here you are, Albert. Another pint. Thank you, Condy, sir. Ah, yes, you're very good health, gentlemen. Oh, an amazing capacity. That's the fifth. I can't think where he puts it. I see no mystery there, Watson. Go on with your story, Albert. You just reached the point where the shark had turned on you. Ah. Well, gentlemen, I ups on the rail and dives into that raging sea. Pulls out me knife. Oh, really? Uh, Where did you get the knife? I thought you said that you'd lost your clothes in the hurricane. Stripped to me middle, I was. 
but I always kept a bowie knife stuck in me belt. Oh, really? How uncomfortable. Well, I see the white belly of the shark turning at me. I let him have it. A rip here, a slash there. Ooh, there was blood all over the place. Never saw such a mess. Uh, Storytelling's very dry work, gentlemen. I'll order you another pint, Albert. Uh, thank you kindly, sir. Watson. Look who's just come in. It's our old friend Sergeant Dobson, isn't it? Yes, and judging by his expression, the local representative of the law has serious business on his mind. Good evening, Sergeant. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. Evening, Dr. Watson. How are you, Dobson? Can I have a word with you, private-like? Of course you can. Oh, I beg pardon, sir, but uh, you did say something about buying me another uh, pint. Don't worry, Albert. We'll have it sent over for you. <laughs> Please give Albert another pint, Annie. Put it on my bill. Right you are, Mr. Holmes. Perhaps you wouldn't mind stepping into the private bar, gentlemen. Very well. Now, Sergeant, sit down and tell us what's on your mind. Murder, Mr. Holmes. Great Scott. Who? Where? Well, have you gentlemen noticed the fancy sailing boat that's been moored out in the cove this past week? Yes. I was informed that it was owned by George Byron, the Lancashire cotton manufacturer. Uh, that's correct, sir. The boat's named the Sally Martin. And right at this moment, Mr. Byron's lying there in his cabin with a knife in his ribs. Deader than a boiled mackerel. Good gracious me. I rode ashore to send a telegram to the police at Canterbury. But I left a constable to guard the people aboard. Good. I... I'm going back now to conduct my investigation. But the Canterbury police can't be here for morning, and I I was hoping that... That we'd help you, Sergeant? Well, sir, a case like this is a little outside of my experience. Well, just a minute, Dobson. Mr. Holmes is still a sick man. It's cold out and foggy. As his doctor, I forbid... Rubbish. Oh, How can I stay here in the inn while a murder lies waiting to be solved less than a mile away? Come, Watson. The game's afoot. Much further is it, Sergeant? About a about a quarter of a mile, well, sir. If we don't get there soon, I won't answer for the consequences. I'm a rotten sailor. Cheer up, Watson. In the meanwhile, Sergeant, suppose you give me as many facts as possible. How many people are aboard the Sally Martin? Well, there's three passengers, Mr. Holmes, and and two in the crew. Well, let's have those passengers first. Well, there's there's Mrs. Byron, the dead man's wife. A lot younger than him, she is, and and she looks a bit on the flighty side, if you ask me. Even though she was having a proper fit of hysterics, like... And then there's... There's Clarence Byron, the dead man's brother. And what opinion did you form as to his character? Well, sir, you understand I didn't talk to him much. But he acted cool as a cucumber, just... Just as if murder didn't mean a thing to him. And the third passenger? Well, he's a young fella by the name of Hodgson. Secretary to the dead man. Very nicely spoken gentleman he is. But it seemed to me as if Mrs. Byron had quite an eye for him, even, even through her tears. That's why I said she seemed flighty-like. You're very observant, Sergeant. Oh, it's, it's just training, sir. How about the two crew members? Well, there's, there's Captain Small. He seemed perfectly above board. And a, a man by the name of Coggins. Arthur Coggins. He's a, he's a deckhand. And a mighty surly one at that. He gave me quite a bit of back chat when I questioned him. Holmes, how much further is it? Barely a hundred yards, old chap. Oh, I feel awful. Do hurry up. Move over, Sergeant. Let me take an oar. There's the murdered man, Mr. Holmes. That's just how we found him. 
Very illuminating. Look at that murderous knife. It's buried to the hilt in his chest. Yes, but more interesting than the knife at the moment is the tableau presented in this cabin. What story does it tell you, Watson? Very simple story. Somebody opened the cabin door, came in, and stabbed him. Oh, come now. Surely our years together have made you a little more perceptive than that. Well, that's what you're driving at. Well, for one thing, in his right hand is an open book. Oh, been reading? Yes, and the sergeant has told us that the oil lantern beside his bunk was still burning when the body was found. Well, that's right, Mr. Holmes. There's no sign of a struggle. Bedclothes are in, aren't even rumpled. No cry for help was heard, so let us reconstruct the scene. Mr. Byron was lying in his bunk, reading, as you observed, Watson. Oh, quite easy. The door opens. The murderer comes in, the knife hidden in his or her clothing. The victim has no suspicion of his fate because the murderer was someone who could enter his cabin at will. And suddenly, the fatal blow is struck. Then it must have been one of the three passengers. I think we may reasonably include the captain. The master of a schooner surely would have the ability to enter his employer's cabin without creating suspicion. Oh, you're right, Mr. Holmes. I think we've seen enough here, Sergeant. Where are the passengers? In their cabin, sir. I told them to wait there until they were sent for. The main saloon's empty. You could see them in there nice and private-like. Splendid. Then let's go there. At once. friend's only trying to help you. Oh, how can he help me? He can't bring poor George back to life again, can he? No, madam. But at least I can try to find his murderer for you. He's right, ma'am. So take it easy, like, and answer his questions. Very well. Uh, what do you want to know, Mr. Holmes? Can you suggest anyone who might have had the motive for murdering your husband? Oh, half a dozen men. George made a lot of money. He was a hard businessman. He had many enemies. But none of his business enemies had an opportunity of killing him tonight. His biggest enemy, though I never could make him believe it, is on this very boat now. His brother, Clarence. Biggest enemy? His own brother? Oh, come, 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 it's madam. True. It's true. Clarence sponged on him. That's done for years. And ever since I married George, he's tried to be more friendly to me than a brother-in-law should be. Mm -hmm. Just because I was once in the theatre, he seems to think I didn't know how a lady oh, behaves. Oh, you were in the theatre? I wonder if you knew a girl who was Daly's. Pretty little figure. Uh, Watson, the... surely this is no time for your theatrical reminiscences. Oh, Mrs. Byron, are you familiar with the terms of your husband's will? Everything he has comes to me. Oh? Well, that's perfectly natural, isn't it? Perfectly. But in that case, your brother-in-law would hardly seem to profit from your husband's death. I don't know what you're suggesting, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Do you think I stabbed him? <laughs> I wouldn't have had the strength. Mrs. Byron, I suggested nothing but I'm interested to notice that you answer your questions as well as ask them. Well, I'm not staying here to answer any more questions, Mr. Holmes. I'm going back to my cabin. If you want me, that's where you'll find me. No, wait a minute, ma'am. Let her go, Sergeant. And please ask Mr. Hodgson, the secretary, to come in here. Just as you say, sir. Well, upon my soul, she's a fine little thing, isn't she? Just attractive, too. What do you make of her, Holmes? It's hard to say. If one wished to adduce motive, it would be easy. Well, she must be 25 years younger than her husband. And uh, a fortune coming to her at his death, eh? Precisely. And despite her own statement, a woman would have the strength to stab an unsuspecting man to death. Here's Mr. Hodgson, sir. Thank you, Sergeant. Please sit down, Mr. Hodgson. Yes, Mr. Holmes. This is a shocking business. It is indeed, my boy. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Any questions you like. When did you last see your employer tonight? Mm, shortly after dinner, Mr. Holmes. He was taking a turn round the deck. We chatted for a few minutes, and then I went to my cabin and retired. It was about 9.30 or quarter to 10. You heard no cry for help? No shout in the night? No, none. 
The first I knew of the tragedy was when the captain awakened me. Can you suggest who might have had a motive for his murder? Mr. Holmes, that's... that's a little hard to answer. Come now, Mr. Hodgson, don't hold anything back. You'll have to talk in a court of law, you know. Yes, I suppose so. Well, gentlemen, in my capacity as secretary, I did know that my employer's brother, Clarence, has been borrowing heavily. Only yesterday morning, I was compelled to draw my employer's attention to an irregularity in the monthly bank statement. A 500-pound check had been drawn. The signature was a forgery. And you think that Clarence Barron committed that forgery? Yes, I do, sir. And so did my employer. The two brothers had a terrible row about it. Uh, Sergeant, will you be good enough to ask Mr. Clarence Byron to come here, please? Right you are, Mr. O. One very personal question, Mr. Hodgson. Was the relationship between you and your employer's wife a purely social one? As a matter of fact, Mrs. Byron has been very kind to me. Oh, really? My family are dead and she's taken an interest in me. But I give you my word that it's been purely platonic. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Sergeant Dobson. Mr. Clarence Byron is lying in his bunk, sir. He says he can't come here. He's got a heart attack. A heart attack? That's rather convenient, uh, Holmes. Yes, Watson. And it's also convenient that there's a doctor aboard. Let's go and see him, shall we? better, Mr. Barron? Yes. Yes, I do, Doctor. That injection you gave me helped. It was digitalis, I suppose. No, it wasn't. Holmes's heart's perfectly sound. He was simulating an attack. So I gathered, since an injection of plain water apparently gave him immediate relief. Plain water? Yes, your heartbeat was full and regular, and your color normal. So I decided to try an experiment. And a very successful one. Why did you pretend to have a heart attack, Mr. Byron? I, I wasn't pretending. I do have a bad heart. That I don't doubt. Only a bad heart could prompt you to swindle your brother and then murder him. I didn't murder him. Though, uh, I can tell you who did. Oh? You are very eager to shift suspicion, Mr. Byron. Who, in your opinion, murdered your brother? It's that deckhand, Arthur Coggins. Only a few days ago he threatened my brother's life. You heard him make the threat? Yes, I did. It was his second day aboard. It was early in the morning, and I was strolling on deck when I came on this man Coggins, who was standing by the mainmast, practicing throwing a knife. You're pretty handy with a knife, Coggins. What's that? I said you're pretty handy with a knife. Yes, I know how to use a knife. Do you uh, think you're going to like being on this ship? No. Not if I don't get treated like a human being. Just yesterday, the owner yells out to me, yeah, you, whatever your name is, treating me like dirt, whatever your name is. Can't he find out my name? I'm as good as he is. One of these dark nights, he'll get what's coming to him. That's what he said, Mr. Holmes. And he looked as if he meant business. He's an expert with a knife, you say. Holmes, do you think it's possible that Coggins threw the knife through a porthole into the dead man's cabin? Yes, Watson, it's possible. Your story was interesting, Mr. Byron, though, of course, entirely uncorroborated. I think we'll go and talk to the captain and see if he can supplement your information. I can't answer for the passengers. That's no business of mine. I appreciate that, Captain Small. 
But you'll answer for your crew, no doubt. That I will, sir. And this man Coggins is a no good if ever I saw one. Insubordinate, surly, always talking about how he's as good and better than those who employ him. And why did you engage him, Captain? I didn't, sir. That was arranged by my employer, Mr. George Barron. If I had my way, Coggins would have gone back ashore the first day he stepped aboard. Where are his... Great Scott, is that a revolver shot? It sounded like it, and it came from the forecastle. Mr. Holmes! Mr. Holmes! This way, Sergeant. Good heavens! Why, it's Coggins! With a smoking revolver in his right hand. He's committed suicide. Yes. Very convincing, isn't it? His head is sprawled on a piece of fool's cap. A confession note, no doubt. Yes, it is. Look at this. I killed him, and with my record, I knew you'd catch me, so I took the quick way out. Case is solved, Holmes. On the contrary, Watson, it's becoming more involved. If you look closely, you'll realize that we now have two murders to solve instead of one. And somewhere on this boat, a murderer is still at large, and may strike a third time. just a moment, we'll find out if the murderer does strike a third time. But first, men, if you're bald, you might as well grin and bear it because science tells us it's impossible to grow hair where the hair roots are dead. But you certainly can make the most of the hair you've got. And men, you can't beat Kreml hair tonic. To help you, Kreml contains very special hair grooming ingredients found in no other hair tonic. That's why Kreml keeps hair neatly in place longer and without that offensive, greasy look. But Kreml does lots more than keep hair looking handsome. Let me repeat, Kreml does lots more than keep hair looking handsome. A massage with Kreml helps stimulate circulation right in the surface of the scalp. Your scalp feels so alive, so invigorated. At the same time, it removes loose dandruff and has a fine lubricating effect on a dry scalp. And for hair that's so dry that it cracks and falls, remember Kreml actually helps condition the hair in that it leaves it feeling so much softer and more pliable. Men, buy a bottle of Kreml at any drug counter. It's such a nice, clean product, you can use it every day so that your hair always looks its best. K-R-E-M-L. Kreml Hair Tonic. So, Dr. Watson, the apparent suicide turned out to be another of the murderer's victims. Yes, Mr. Bell. Holmes at once sent Sergeant Dobson to check the passengers while the three of us stood in that tiny cabin, an oil lamp swinging above us and shedding a strange glow on the macabre scene. I asked him why he was so positive that it wasn't suicide. You will notice, Watson, that the revolver is in Coggins' right hand. Yes, Holmes, I don't see what... Then the... ignore the right hand and observe the left. A deckhand is accustomed to hard manual labor. Notice the calluses on his left hand and the freedom from them on the right. By Jove, he was left-handed. Yes, he, he was, Mr. Holmes. I've I, noticed him at work. Again, you'll observe the shot entered his head from behind the right ear. A remarkable feat of dexterity for a left-handed man. And the murderer had the note ready, shot Coggins from behind, but made the mistake of placing the revolver in the wrong hand. Precisely. But this note, obviously in disguised writing, poses another problem. What does the phrase, and with my record, I knew you'd catch me, mean? He must have had a police record. But why volunteer the information? I wonder if the murderer had a reason. Captain, 
You said that Cockins was engaged by Mr. George Byron. Well, sir, he told me about the new man, but I don't know that he interviewed him personally. Where was he engaged? At the Seaman's Hostel uh, here in the village. Oh, what are you getting at home? Surely it's obvious, Watson. If this man Coggins had a police record, his murderer might have deliberately placed him on this boat knowing he would be suspected. Yes, yes, it's possible. But the question is, who engaged him? Well, Sergeant? All three of them in their cabins, Mr. Holmes, and swore they hadn't left them. And yet we know that one of them must have slipped down here and shot Coggins? Lock them in their cabins, Sergeant. Keep good watch on them. Dr. Watson and I are going ashore. Ashore? Why, Holmes, when the murderer's here on this boat? Because I'm convinced that the clue to his identity lies waiting for us at the Seaman's Hostel. Where is the place, Sergeant, and who runs it? Old Ma Jenkins. It's the house just next to the Red Lion on the quayside. Splendid. Watson, we're taking this note and rowing ashore. Another trip in that filthy rowing boat? Must we, Holmes? It's a fine time of night to rootle a respectable woman out of a warm bed, I must say, and no mistake. But, Mrs. Jenkins, you... Call me Ma. Everyone calls me Ma. Very well. We've come to you because you're the one person who can help solve two murders that took place on the Sally Martin tonight. Murder? Come into me parlor. I'll light the lamp. There. Now, what's this you say happened aboard the Sally Martin? The owner, Mr. Barron, was stabbed to death about 10 o'clock tonight. Later on, a seaman by the name of Arthur Coggins was killed, too. Arthur was killed? You knew this man, Arthur Coggins? Of course I did. Over a year he's been staying with me. He couldn't get a ship because of his record. What record was that? He brought his ship's papers to me. They all do when they're out of a berth. The last ship he was on two years ago, it was. He got mixed up in a knife fight. Oh, did he? Alaska was killed and Arthur arrested. They couldn't prove he was guilty, but he hasn't had a birth since because it was written in his papers. Oh, that fits into your theory, Holmes. The murderer engaged him deliberately, knowing his record. Exactly. Mrs. Uh, Ma. That's me. Do you recall the name of the man who interviewed Coggins? No. The man who engaged him for the Sally Martin? Uh-uh. No. But, but it's here in my book. It's the last entry I made. Uh, here it is. Clarence Byron. The brother. There's our man, Holmes. Could you describe the appearance of Mr. Byron, Ma? No, I, I can't say I remember much about it. He was all muffled up. He was a nice-spoken gentleman, though. You can recall no clue to his identity? It's uh, worth a sovereign to you, if you can. A sovereign? Well, let me think out. Y yes, there's one thing I do remember. He had a gold signet ring on his right hand. Splendid, Ma. Watson, the case is solved. Of course it is. Clarence is the man. May I congratulate you on your powers of observation, Watson. Ma, here are two sovereigns for you. Two? But you The said... extra one is for the privilege uh, of borrowing this uh, registry book of yours for a few uh, hours. No. I'm taking it back to the Sally Martin with us so that we may compare the handwriting in it with that of a murderer. But this is ridiculous, Mr. Holmes. Why should you ask Clarence to sign his name? Bear with me a few moments longer, Mrs. Byron, and you'll see why. I'm blessed if I know what you're up to, Mr. Holmes. I'm a little patient, Sergeant, and you'll see, too. Have you any objection to signing your name, Mr. Byron? I uh, suppose not, though I'm just as confused as the rest of them. 
There. Thank you. And now, Mr. Hodgson, I wonder if you'd mind helping us. Of course not, Mr. Holmes. What can I do? You saw a forged check. I wonder if you'd try and imitate the signature that Mr. Clarence Byron has just written. Mr. Byron's signature? Yes, his writing is extremely individual, but I think you could help prove that under certain circumstances it can be elastic. See how nearly you can imitate it. I think it'll help us to prove that he murdered his brother. Clarence, you did murder George. I knew it. Mabel, you're out of your mind. Will you copy his signature, Mr. Hudson? Of course, if you think it'll help you. Holmes, Holmes, look, look. Hudson. Sign, please, Mr. Hodgson. Clarence Byron. There. Thank you. That's a remarkably fine gold signet ring you're wearing, Mr. Hodgson. Thank you. Watson, give me Mar Jenkins' register book. There you are, Holmes. Sergeant, I want you to compare the signature in this book with that which Mr. Hodgson has just given us. I think you'll agree that they're both written by the same man. They are. Well, blow me down. So he forged Clarence's signature. Exactly. He is quite a specialist in handwriting. Albert, you didn't kill him. You couldn't have done it. It's no good, Mabel, and you know it as well as I do. You knew what I was up to. You helped me. <gasps> you suggested that I use Clarence's name. That's a lie. It's a not lie or not, Sergeant, I suggest you take out your notebook. They're talking in front of witnesses, so make the most of the fact. <laughs> The sun's coming up, Watson. Uh, yes, and the, the sea's calmer, Higgins. A very satisfactory start to a new day. The confessed murderer and his accomplice, both of them safely in the care of the police. Yes, I was convinced, until we found him murdered, that Coggins, the, the deckhand, was the guilty party. Exactly what you were meant to think. I thought that, uh, as he was an expert knife thrower, he could have thrown one through a porthole into the dead man's cabin. No, Watson. Both portholes were at the head of the bunk. But the knife wound was from the underside of the heart and upwards. It would have been impossible to have thrown the knife through a porthole at such an yes, angle. Yes, yes, I can see it all now. Young Hodgson, coveting his employer's wife, planned a knife murder and then engaged Coggins, knowing that with his record, he'd be the logical suspect. Yes, but like so many murderers, he tried to be too clever. He left enough clues to hang himself half a dozen well, times why over. Why did Clarence pretend to have that heart attack? The nervousness of a person who knows himself to be under suspicion... A futile attempt to escape interrogation. Oh, I'm glad it's all over. I'm exhausted and I'm frozen, and I'm delighted to think that this is my last trip in this horrible rowing boat. Whereas I'm feeling very stimulated, and in a distinctly altruistic mood. Altruistic? What do you mean, Holmes? If you'll observe the flurry of excitement at the quayside, the figures in blue surge that are at this moment embarking in boats, you'll realize that the police from Canterbury have just arrived. Well, I still don't see how altruism comes into the picture. I intend to claim no credit in the solution of this crime. And in consequence, I see little reason why our old friend Sergeant Dobson should not very soon be known as Inspector Dobson. just a moment, Dr. Watson will tell us something about next week's story. But first, girls, if you want to really make a hit with a boyfriend, here's a beauty tip right out from here in Hollywood. And one which lovely Powers models were among the first to discover. Give your hair a ten-minute glamour bath with Cremel Shampoo. This amazingly beautifying shampoo has been especially developed so that it actually brings out all the brilliant natural luster of each tiny strand of hair. Cremel shampoo leaves the hair fairly teeming with highlights. 
And don't forget Cremel shampoo is wonderful for the entire family. Yes, even in the hardest water, it whips up gobs of rich, luxurious foam, which penetrates right to the scalp and removes all loose dandruff as well as the dirt. So, ladies, buy the large family size of Cremel shampoo. K-R-E-M-L. Cremel shampoo, the largest selling shampoo with an oil base. Now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week. Next week, I think I'll tell you how Holmes solved a murder with... Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.